I'd like to take a minute of your time to let you know what you can do to help Recovery Radio continue its mission as a premier provider of free ongoing support to recovering people worldwide. Recently, our expenses have skyrocketed. The increase is powered by our increasing bandwidth and storage needs caused by the growing popularity of our programs. This is actually a good problem to have as it shows that we are filling a need as we continue our mission to serve the recovery community. However, even good problems are problems that need resolutions and this is where you come in. Recovery Radio has started a fundraiser to help defray our additional costs. Please surf on over to recoveryradio.net and click the donate button. Give whatever amount you can, and rest assured your donation will be used to keep Recovery Radio on air and on mission. Please become part of the solution and help us support the recovery community. Well, good morning, y'all. Um, my name's June. I'm a member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Allen on and Alateen, and my home group's in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I'm happy to be here. And to see all y'all out there, I tell you, that this is a good crowd for an on speaker. <laughs> uh, first of all, I have to write down who I want to thank, and I, I want to thank Jay and the committee that have done such a marvelous job putting on this conference. It's wonderful. And I want to thank Betty for picking me up the airport. Now, Betty and I have a real bond. She's from Kannapolis, North Carolina. I'm a Dale Earnhardt fan, and I mean <laughs> die hard. And um, and so uh, we've had a lot of fun talking about him. I mean, I flew a flag, number three flag, for two or three years after he got killed. It's that bad. Um, I was never so tickled in my life to see somebody as I was to see James. I'm telling you all, I was scared to death when I heard that hurricane was coming down there in New Orleans and was going to wipe out Slidell, and I could just see James and all them tapes just floating down the Mississippi or somewhere. And uh, and I got here and found out he was here, and I was thrilled to death. And and I know that he's uh, he does a super job. Taping is real special to me. Butch mentioned it last night. Uh, I I listen to tapes, and I've listened to them for years and years and years. And I think it's a real good tool of our recovery. And sometimes we fail to thank those tapers that drag this stuff around and do this for us. I had a lovely uh, basket up in my room. I have a fancy name tag, which I love, y'all's name tags. And um, I enjoyed Butch last night. Lord, I thought he did a great job, and I really appreciate it. I didn't get to hear Barbara, didn't get here early enough to hear Barbara, but I know Barbara, and I know that uh, she walks the walk. And so I will listen, get to listen to her tape on the way home, but I know she did a super job. I'm looking forward to Bob in the morning and to uh, Jim tonight. And it's been my pleasure to get to meet all of y'all that are strangers to me, but uh, you won't be when we leave. With that, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, myself. I, um, As I said, I'm a member of uh, Al-Anon. I have a home group. I'm sponsored. I, I, I do sponsor. Uh, I read the material. But I might as well just get it out in the open right here. I'm what they call a big book Al-Anon. I was raised on that big book, and um, that's where I got my learning. And uh, and we we have conference privilege here. We go with it, and we do this, and we do that. 
that, uh, that they tell us to do, and we're happy to do it and promote the program of Al-Anon because I know without the program of Al-Anon, I wouldn't be standing here this morning. God knows where I'd be and where three little old snot-nosed kids would be. But um, it saved my life, saved my marriage. And because of this program we call Al-Anon, I don't have to live with the shame of my past anymore. I can get up in the morning and walk in faith instead of fear. Jay, or Butch talked about that fear last night. I can, uh, I can walk in humility and gratitude instead of arrogance and pride that I once walked with. And Al-Anon did that for me. Al-Anon showed me a God of my understanding that I was raised up in the church, but I never knew this kind of a God, this relationship that I have today. So please don't think in any fashion that I'm putting anything down about Al-Anon. I'm just telling you that I was one of what I think is the lucky ones that came in here with old-time sponsorship, old people that came in our program before there was a gajillion books, and they told me, we will do it the way the book of uh, big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so that's what we did. Now, I um, haven't said that. I'm surprised half of you didn't get them walk out of the room. But you're still here, so I'll go on. <laughs> I, um, I was raised down there at Bigsby. I live at Bigsby, Oklahoma. That's about uh, 30, my, uh, 30 minutes from Tulsa. I was raised down there on a farm. My daddy was a very prominent farmer in, in that small community, farm community. I have one sister. I had a wonderful mother, a wonderful home. I had everything under the sun I ever needed and pretty near everything I wanted. Uh, my daddy and my mother were real strict. They raised us in the Southern Baptist Church. We went to church every time the doors opened. They didn't allow no card playing, no dancing, no nothing. I mean, it was pretty bad. And so <laughs> when I was 17 years old, I decided I know how I'll do, how I'll get out of here, and I got married. Now, I married into a family of people that was real well known in our community, too. They lived down the road about 10 miles. They made whiskey. They killed one another. There was always stuff. <laughs> there was big write-ups in the Tulsa world about them. They had a lawyer on retainer. I mean, these people. <laughs> They did not go to church. They fought. They drank. They, they smoked cigarettes. And Mama read True Confession magazines. And my mother would not let a True Confession magazine darken our door. So I was tickled to death. It was like going from daylight to dark. My family liked to die when I married into that family. But it was like going into heaven. I thought I died and went to heaven. I was sitting out there smoking cigarettes, drinking pop. Uh, and that, they had that whiskey still out in the backyard. I'd go out there and watch them do that. And... It was exciting, and, um, and, and then I was married nine months and 11 days, and I always like to put that in there so you won't think, I did not have to get married. I wish I could stand up here and say I got pregnant, and that was the reason. That wasn't the reason. The reason was I made a bad choice. I, <laughs> I did, and it was not my family. It had nothing to do with anybody except me. I made a bad choice, and I lived like that uh, in that family for uh, quite a while, and I started having kids. I had my first one when I'd been married nine months, 11 days. 17 months later, I had my second one. That was Pat. 17 months later, I had Mike, and my first one was a girl, Regina. Now, my husband, he fought. He was bad. He, he drank. He, he didn't drink when I married him, but he started drinking. His mama said it was my fault, and... Uh, <laughs> 
And she was full blood Indian, and when she said it, you listened. And so I figured it's how it must be me, and uh, so I started trying to hang out with him. I go, I ran them honky tonks. I did things for the first time in my life, things I never ever thought I'd stoop so low as to do. I ran them joints and them honky tonks. I I ran with it didn't make any difference to me if he was married to you or you or who it was. If I wanted to go out, I went. I did all these things that you're not supposed to do. Uh, I left my three little old kids wherever I could find a place to leave them. They had a black lady that worked in their home, and, and she kept my children a great deal of the time. And um, it was just, and I'd be gone, you know, we'd go off and, and maybe not show up for two or three days and and uh, run, run the roads and run the joints and uh, do all that kind of stuff. And my husband was abusive, and he would beat me absolutely senseless from time to time. And so I'd load up my kids and take my kids and go home to Mom and Daddy. And the saddest part about that is my mom and daddy were financially able and were more than willing to take me out of that mess, and I was not willing to go. We talk a lot about abused women these days, and everybody says, how could they stay and how could they take that? I can tell you right now I was an abused woman, and I don't know the answer. I just know I kept going back and kept going back and kept going back for eight years. From time to time, I would go back to my church, and I would try to get involved, and, and I would get involved, and I would try to do that, and that didn't work, and... And so finally my daddy came and, and told me one day that there was a house right across the field from the big house where he lived. And he said, if you want to come home, I'll bring you home. And he brought a, a truck and, and some field hands, and they loaded up me and three little old kids and what little I had left. And we moved down there to Leonard. Now, I live actually live at Leonard. It's got about 200 people in it out there in the country, all farms. Uh, I live on our home place today. My daddy passed away, and I now live on the home place. And... And um, so we moved down there at Leonard. I was 25 years old, got three little snotty-nosed kids. My daddy, I have no education except high school. My daddy don't believe in women working. My daddy was a very strong man. I absolutely believed that he walked on water. He, I, I adored that man, like Peter loved the Lord. And, and my daddy said to me, you're, not, you're going to stay home, you're going to raise them kids, and I'll put money in the bank. And he did that. He started putting money in the bank for me every week, and we had the things that we needed and, and, and more than we needed. And um, and we weren't hungry. There were times when we didn't have food to eat when I was living with my husband. And and so uh, I'm down there, stuck down there in Leonard. Uh, Daddy's watching me like a hawk because he don't cotton to my past behavior and the people I've been running with, and he ain't having it. And so I thing for me to do is just sit there. And so I figure it's how I, it's over. I mean, my life is over and done with. That Leonard, about 200 people down there, and either all the men were either old or took, and I knew there wasn't a way in the world I was going to get a man. So I'm just going to sit there and resign myself to this. Now, but God does things for us when we're not able to do things for ourselves. And so we, this cowboy moved in a section over from us. He was training horses for a living. I've always rode horses all my life. He trained horses for a living. My little boy's riding horses. And they'd ride across the section line and go over and visit with Carl. Now, I knew Daddy wasn't going to ha- uh, have no uh, no dating. So what I did was I hauled water from the well over at Carl's. And I'd put a milk can in the back end of Mama's car. And I'd go over there and, and fill it up with water and bring it home, wrestle it around, and get it out. And my Daddy came, and he's not no mental midget by any stretch of imagination. He said, why are you going over to that boy's house hauling that water? I said, well, it makes a lot better tea and coffee than mine. And uh, he didn't buy that, so he put a stop to me hauling water. And uh, so uh, 
anyway, uh, I, I look, I look Carl over and he'd wave at me and I'd wave at him and sometimes he'd ride his horse around on the section line and ride my little boys. And, and we'd kind of flirt back and forth across the fence and through the fields and stuff like that. And God, he was cute. He, he wore, uh, Wranglers and, uh, good boots and a good hat and good shirts, starched and ironed. And I'm going to tell you something. That man looked good in them Wranglers and it didn't matter if he was coming or going. He looked good. <laughs> And I can report to you that when I left home Friday morning, that man was still dressed like that. And he still looked good in them Wranglers. And he's 75 years old. And he's still, he don't own a pair of shoes, never owned a pair of shoes. And uh, he wears boots and Wranglers and a good hat and a good coat. And he still looks good. So um, he finally, after uh, we'd been waving back and forth with one another, he called me up one night and he said, I need to come and visit with you. Well, I said, hide your car around behind the house because <laughs> if Daddy sees it or gets wind of this, we're in big time trouble. And he, so he had his car and he come around there. He'd been uptown in a wedding, up Tulsa in a wedding, and he was all dressed up in his tuxedo and all that jazz. And I got up out of bed and put on what I always wore, a pair of jeans and a t-shirt, had my hair rolled up in them yellow, them pinky foam things, <laughs> and put one of them nets down over my head and, uh, sat down over there on the roof to see what in the world he wanted. And he backed up against the stove, and he said, uh, June, I've come down here to see if you'll marry me. And I said, yeah. I mean, I didn't even think. I didn't even think. I said, I was never tickled in my life. And I said, well, you have to go up there and talk to Daddy. And he said, well, I'll go talk to him. I don't care to go talk to him. So he went up there the next morning. He told my daddy, he said, I'm going to marry June. And my daddy said, you got to be crazy, boy. He said, it, <laughs> it takes a lot of money to keep that bunch up and, and cross it. <laughs> I, I know it does, but we're going to get married. And, and daddy said, well, what does she think? And he said, she said, yeah. And so we knew each other three months and we got married. Now, I'm not recommending that to anybody. I did not come here to recommend that kind of thing. I never had a date with him. We just got married. And... <laughs> you got three little snotty-nosed kids and a daddy like mine watching. You ain't going to be out dating, I can tell you that for sure. We just got married. And um, and I'd like to report to you that on the 11th day of August of this uh, year, we had made it 45 years. And I can tell you that that alone is a miracle. It's a miracle. Uh, we, uh, Carl had two little girls and I had three. We, he had, we had, when we got married, we had two kids five and two kids six and one seven. One of his little girls made her home with us. She stayed with us till we sent her to college. Uh, I still have very good contact with her today. She lives here in Bixby with her children and her, and her, and her husband. Carl adopted my children when we'd been married two years. Their natural daddy, uh, stood in a courtroom and gave those children to him. And so we started out with a lot of hopes and dreams. I walked with so much pride and arrogance because I was so proud that I had snared this good man. My husband is not, did not drink, does not drink today. Uh, he, we worked. We worked hard. We bought a little farm right down the road from where I'm living today. And every time my kids went somewhere to show a horse or a pig or a cow, do the things they did, they won. It was real important that they won, and we saw to it that they were on the kind of horse that could win. They were showing the kind of pig or cow that could win, 
and they won. And every time they won, I went running up to Bixby, to the Bixby Bulletin. That's our paper that's up there. And I wrote up this article. And I put in the article what my kid had won. Pat Christensen, son of Carl and June Christensen. Because, see, I know that just 10 miles down the road, there's a family down there that's reading that and it's eating them alive. And I'm wanting to make them sick every chance I get because they was mean and tacky to me. And so that came back to haunt me in the days to come. But that's what I did. I was so proud of myself. And so we started out with all these hopes and dreams. We bought this little farm. We worked like field hands. My little boys made field hands from the very early age, 8, 9, 10 years old. They were driving combines and tractors. The girls and me, and uh, we worked in the fields and did whatever we had to do to help out. And, um, and we, we, just, we just had an ideal family. There was no alcohol. There was no abuse. There was none of these things that I had lived in for that eight years. And so then, but alcoholism slips in quietly and subtly. And it came to my home. And I can tell you right now that because of what happened to me over the next few years, I can stand up here this morning and tell you that I suffer from a disease called alcoholism, and I don't have a problem with drinking. Alcoholism is a family disease. I watched it take my family and absolutely grind us into the ground. And it will do that to you and many of you sitting out here have had that same experience. Alcoholism is a family disease, and you don't have to drink to get it. And so my daughter was uh, uh, 15 years old, and she went to a party up Bixby. And a man called us and said, you need to come up here and get her. She's drunk. And Carl got in the pickup, and he was absolutely mad enough to spit nails. We lived two miles off the highway. I'll never forget the sound of that gravel slinging out of that driveway as he drove out of there to go get that little girl. He got her, and he brought her home, and he slung her down in the rocking chair. Chair flopped back and forth. She flopped back and forth. And my husband, that I absolutely adored, and I loved him like Peter loved the Lord, he said something to her that night. He called her a tramp. And something happened to me. And it set up way down deep in here. And it grew and it grew and it grew until I came to you. And it, came, and it stayed with me until long after I came to you. I came to you in August of 1987. And that thing was there and it was there until just a few years ago. It took a long time to get rid of that because it kept growing and I didn't know what to do. And so the, the, uh, we kind of got her over that and, and we sent her off to college when she graduated high school. She went up to uh, northern Oklahoma and she came home in the summer of 1971 and she stayed in an apartment in Tulsa. And uh, at two o'clock in the morning, one morning, the phone rang and it was the law. And they said we, they had arrested my daughter and they had her in Tulsa County Jail on a drug charge. At five o'clock that morning, they came picked up my boy Pat, and they said they had uh, they had they were arresting him for the same thing. Carl had bought Pat a new car because Pat had worked like a field hand all those years, and we had not paid him wages, and we had managed to buy him a new car. And they went out there in that car and they unscrewed places I didn't even know was in a car, and they pulled out stuff I didn't know what it was. And I got two kids locked up in Tulsa County Jail in the summer of 1971. And the Bixby Bulletin came out. And the, and the Bixby Bulletin said, Pat and Regina Christensen, son and daughter of Carl and June Christensen, are being held in the Tulsa County Jail on a drug charge. We hung our head in shame because in that summer of 1971, in that small little farm community of Bixby, Oklahoma, we were the first family that that happened to. 
and we could not face the people in our church. We could not face the people in our community. We didn't absolutely did not know what to do. The only thing I knew to do was what I'd done all my life, go run into my daddy and quiver my chin and cry, and my daddy would fix me. He always could fix me. He could buy me a new car. He could buy me a, a, some new furniture, or he could just put some cash in my hand, and he could fix me, and I knew he could fix this. And we took them, we took my mom and daddy and we went up to that courthouse. And I told Carl how to act. I said, now don't you go up there and act ugly because Carl was high tempered. Now don't you go up there and stomp around them high, in them cowboy boots and act ugly and scream around and cuss and everything in front of mom and daddy because I don't want them to see how we are and I don't want them to know how you act. Well shoot, he, he didn't mind me. He wasn't minding when I left Friday morning. He ain't mind to learn to mind me yet. But I've learned to get off his back. I don't, my, I don't worry. I don't bother him about it no more. He went up there and acted ugly, just like I knew he would. And uh, and we were able to get my kids out of that jam. And uh, and we, me and Carl had bought a pretty sizable ranch place down in Okmulgee County, which is about 20 miles further on south down from us. And we bought it purely to speculate on. And because of the shame and disgrace we felt because of what had happened in our family, we sold our little farm there in Leonard, and we moved to um, we moved to Morris on that ranch and we took uh, uh we sent those three kids pat pat regina and sammy that was carl's little girl off to college in the fall and uh, we took mike and went to the ranch and so we got down there and, and the drinking and the drugging that was uh, going on with my children began to really progress um pat had learned to fly an airplane we had airplane we had trouble at school there was always trouble at school and what i would do i would go see it was i don't know about y'all but it was really really important for me to put on a real good front. I did not want people to know that we were a crazy family. I wanted people to think that we were just everything, all that, as the kids say. And so I, I made up stuff, and I, I lied, and I, I thought if we wore the right kind of clothes and we drove the right kind of car and we dressed up and, and went to the right church and ran with the right kind of people, that we were would be all right, never mind what's going on behind the scenes. I could cover that up. We had this airplane, and Pat learned to fly it, and he was soloed when he was 16, I put that in the paper, too, and <laughs> with his picture. <laughs> and... So, and so the principal called me from the school and said, June, you're going to have to get up here and do something about this. These boys are going, they would come home in the afternoon and they'd get in that airplane and they'd fly off. They said they were going practicing and, and they were going up there at that schoolhouse and loading up kids and taking them riding. And the principal said, we, we got to have a stop put to that. So I had to go up there and straighten things out. They were always getting in trouble at school, especially Pat and Mike. But what I would do, I'd go up there and straighten it out. And then I taught my kids to lie. I never said, now here's how you lie. I didn't say that. I just said to him, now let's don't tell your daddy. Maybe it would be better off if you keep your mouth shut and I will handle this. And so I, half the time I didn't tell him stuff. And if I did, I lied. And so I taught my children to lie with the best intentions in the world, but I certainly did. And so we've got all these things. We, we Gosh, I was so successful at this. We stood up in Washington, D.C. one year and received a big award that said we were Farm Family of the Year. And it was crazier and all get out down there by that time. It, it was nuts. So we move off down there on that ranch, and, and on that ranch we ran steers for a living. We, we ran about 1,500 head of steers for a living, and we rode horses. We showed cutting horses, primarily cutting horses, and Carl trained, and I helped, and I made, I, we were partners. We, we get up every morning, we'd saddle up all them, we had 19 stalls in a barn, indoor and outdoor arenas, 
we'd tie them horses all around, and then we'd start. And we'd do that. We'd start in 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning in the summertime because it gets so hot. And so we'd go out, and we'd get the sick cattle and bring them in. We'd doctor them. We'd dehorn. We'd brand. I did all help him give the shots, do everything there was to do. And then we rubbed them horses, and, and, that, and so that's how we lived. And we could do all that, but it's getting to where we can't talk about a kid. Because they were getting to be pretty daggum weird. Mike was rodeoing a lot, and he was gone an awful lot, and he got to acting weird. And um, and Pat would come home, and sometimes he'd ride up. The, we lived right up in the middle of a section. He'd he'd come riding up that long road on a motorcycle or something. We didn't know where he got that. And he'd have long. He'd look boy, he'd look weird. And and. Uh, <laughs> And he wouldn't have on all them good clothes I had just bought him. And I'd say, what happened to them good clothes I just bought you, son? Why, he said, Mama, I don't know. I laid them down. Someone stole them. I, w- I went for years hunting people that had on my kids' boots because <laughs> I-, I believed everything they said. And so Carl, he didn't make no bones about it. He just stepped right out in the middle of that road, and he'd say, you just get the hell off my land, boy. And he'd run him off. Well, we, me and Pat we and Mike, we knew what to do. We'd, they'd go down the road a little ways in the thicket of trees and hang out down there till here I come. And I'd, uh, I'd have my pocketbook, and I always had a lot of money. We had, we had access to some money back them days. Uh, we were digging coal and oil wells and selling high-dollar horses and spending money out the kazoo. But I always had a pocket full of money. And I'd take my money, and I'd go find the kid, and here's how I'd do it. Now, I'm going to give you this money, but you better promise me that you won't go in that old honky-tonk no more. Oh, no, Mama, we won't just give it. We won't do that no more. I yanked Patrick in out of a topless bar in Tulsa one time. I went by and saw the pickup, and I carried, took him right outside, and here I go again. Now, I'm going to give you some money to go home and take care of your business, but you better not go back in that old, no, Mama, I won't. I won't do that no more. Well, what I know about that today, and, and Butch kind of alluded to that last night, is, you see, my kids didn't set out to become those kind of liars because I didn't set out to become what I became. And I became an, a big-time enabler and a liar and a cheater and everything in the world. I was not the woman that's standing before you today. And so that's how we operated. My kids were shooting mirrors out of beer joints and. I've got to go down there and get the beer joint man to shut his mouth, and I buy the mirror, get the kid out of jail. i got to go pick up bad checks. i got to go pay the pickup payment, pay the car payment, pay the rent, do this, do that. And I'm thinking, thinking, thinking all the time, what can I do, what can I do? And so I got this notion. I know what I'll do. I'll send Pat to the Army. So I taught Pat into going to the Army, and, uh, and he went. And I sent him off. He, they took him and sent him off over to Germany. Well, he didn't do very good over there, and uh, <laughs> they sent him home, and they sent a letter and said he had a heroin addiction, and I never will forget it the day that letter arrived before he did. I fell down on my knees, and I prayed like I'd been taught all my life. Lord, if you'll do this, this is what I'll do for you. Lord, if you'll do this, I won't do that no more. I won't never. I knew God was punishing me for the way I had lived, the trashy life I had lived. I don't believe that today. But I believed it that day. And I bargained and I bargained and I bargained with God. That prayer never got as high as that ceiling. I know that today and you know that. And so I think, what in the tarnation am I going to do? That kid's coming home. My husband's an ex-Marine. He's real high-tempered. Pat's coming home. He's a heroin addict. How in the world am I going to? So then I know what to do. I think, think, think all the time, you know. So I... (laughs) 
So then I know what to do. I've got a friend that's a doctor, and I'll go up there to him. And so I go to Tom, and I say, Tom, I need you to put me in the hospital on this day. I just needed nine days. I need you to put me in the hospital on this day. Keep me only nine days. That's all I need. Run some tests on me. I'm really feeling bad. He said, what's wrong with you? Do you know? Oh, I don't know. I just, well, he, he knew because he'd been doctoring Mike where Mike had shot himself in the leg with a gun when he was drunk, and he knew. And I'd say, I don't know, Tom. It's just, I just, well, I'll tell you what. I, by that time, I'd had my back operated twice. I was taking heart pills. I had a big old ulcer. I weighed 100 pounds, looked terrible, wanted to look terrible, wanted everybody to look at me and think, poor little thing. It's that husband. He's driving her crazy. He works her like a dog, blah, 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 blah. And Tom said, okay, I'll, uh, uh, we'll, we'll go to the hospital. So they put me in the hospital, and they did run all the tests. They didn't find nothing wrong with me. And, and um, so, but while I was up there, I, I had... I had went up prior to Pat coming home. I had gone and got Mike out of jail one day in Tulsa and put him on an airplane and sent him to a feedlot in Calipatra, California, where I had a friend. It, I'm going to tell you something. It pays to have friends stashed all over the country when you got kids like I had because you never know when you're going to need to pull in a favor. And so, I mean, it's bad to keep up with a drunk, but you try three of them at one time. It's awful. I'm going to tell you what. If you people could have stood around and watched me operate in those days, you would have looked at me and you would have said, somewhere there's a village that has been denied its idiot. Because <laughs> that's how I operated. And poor Carl, he's just standing around, you know, with his finger in his ears and and... Saying to me every once in a while, June, you better get your head out of your rear end. Them kids are drinking and drugging. And I just thought he was crazier than a balloon. So uh, I had got Mike out of the jail that day. And my God, he'd been up there for a week. And, and he stunk to high heaven. But I didn't have time to change his clothes and dress him up. I had to get him on that airplane. So I stopped at the quick trip and bought a can of an air, uh, some kind of deodorant. <laughs> And a toothpaste and a toothbrush, and I took that kid in the bathroom, and I went right in there with him. I fogged him like I was fogging for mosquitoes to get him to where he... And I, I said, you brush your teeth, and, and, and I mean, I fixed him up good, and God, I felt sorry for whoever he had to sit by on that plane. So I had him out there, so I got to send Pat. So I called in their favor, and, and they said, yeah, I'll send Pat out there, so... Sent Pat out there to the same feedlot, and because um, I knew, you know, I knew that that I'd be safe in that hospital bed. I know there ain't no way in the world they're going to come up here and argue around over the bed of a dying woman. And uh, and I looked like a dying woman. And uh, so anyway, I I got them both shipped off out there. Regina by that time had become a nurse, and then she had got to where she couldn't do that no more. And then she's slinging drinks in behind a bar somewhere. She got to where she couldn't do that no more. And uh, and she's getting married and getting divorced and getting married and getting divorced and and but she didn't she didn't trouble me she didn't come around and just make a pest of herself like the boys did Pat and Mike were always there I think Regina must have had other means of uh, someone taking care of her because uh, they didn't or wouldn't or whatever and and they were always there with their hands out and it was uh, holidays Good Lord I'd rather seen a passel of snakes coming I. <laughs> First of all, I got to clean them up, and I got to make them promise me. And in order to promise, I got to give them a whole bunch of money, and I got to buy them some more new clothes. And 
And one time I got a brainy idea. I know how I'll do it. I'll get Pat to uh, bring the turkey. That's good responsibility. I'll just tell him. He's in charge of the turkey. Well, he'd got married by that time. One more thing for me to take care of. He, and uh, so he was married by that time, and and uh, and I and and his wife called me on Thanksgiving morning, and she said, "June, I hate to tell you this, but I don't know where he's at." So he took that turkey, and he left three days ago, and I ain't seen him. <laughs> well, I'm gonna tell you something now. Drunk people are innovative, and my pat did not let me down. He took that turkey to a man down at Leonard that smoked meat, and he said to him, "If I don't get back." To get that, you take it to my grandpa, and my grandpa will deliver it to my mother, which is how the turkey arrived at my house. <laughs> Pat woke up in a blackout drunk somewhere up in Branson, Missouri. Don't ever trust a drunk to bring the turkey. That is not a good idea. Holidays were terrible. Christmas come around. I knew they wasn't going to show up looking good, and I knew they wasn't going to buy no presents. And I, Now, Regina always showed up looking all right, and she always had a little present for her daddy and her mama and, and the grandma and grandpa. But Pat and Mike, forget them. i got to go find them. i got to clean them up, make a promise, give them some money, do all this. And then what I've got to do is become their personal shopper, because I know there ain't no way in the world they're going to go out and buy no presents. So I go shop, and I buy a book, always for their daddy, and I write in it, disguise my handwriting, and write in there... <laughs> To Daddy with a whole lot of love from Pat and Mike. To Grandma and Grandpa with a whole lot of love from Pat and Mike. Wasn't a bad deal. Uh, sometimes I see something I want. <laughs> <laughs> to Mama with a whole lot of love from... <laughs> I got lots of stuff like that, you know. So then I've got to go in and I've got to watch for him to come up that long road up to our house. And I'd see him coming and I'd go out and I'd spit shine him a little bit, you know, and get them all. Tell them what they bought everybody so they wouldn't like, look like a blooming idiot. When And then my next job was to watch Carl and, um, and see how he acted. And my husband's not no mental midget, I can tell you right now. And he'd open that book and he'd just slam her shut. And a look of disgust would come on his face. And in my heart I would say, well, you ruined my Christmas one more time. It was always poor old Carl's fault. I blamed that man to the gates of hell for years and years and years. And I can report to you people right now that there was no measure of blame within that man. But I had to find somebody that I could blame, and it was going to be him. If he was his real daddy, he wouldn't have acted like that. If he was her real daddy, he wouldn't have said those things. And so I blamed him, and I blamed him, and I blamed him. By that time, me and Carl are living like strangers. We're living down there on that ranch, and I can report to you that we did things to one another that no marriage should survive. And outside the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, mine would not have. We did things to each other that caused us to live like strangers, and we, we, it was like nothingness anymore. There was no rage. There was no anger. It was nothingness. We got up, and we worked like field hands every day, every day, every day, and we could do that, but don't talk about a kid because Carl saw it one way, and I saw it another, and I refused to look at what was staring me in the face. Carl told them boys he ain't going to get them out of jail. And he did. He went one, he went one time and got Mike. He went one time and broke Mogi. Mike got locked up in jail in Mogi, Oklahoma. One time they locked his dog up with him. If you think this don't affect anybody that's around you. <laughs> they put that dog, he had a little old whippet. They put that dog right up there in that cell. Carl went and got the dog. <laughs> he left. <laughs> but, 
so that's how things were rocking along, rocking along in my house. And then um, it was crazier and I'll get out. And, and I sent them, you know, they got married and, and that didn't last. And I sent them to the Army and that didn't last. I sent them to California and that. It didn't make any difference. Where I sent them, they sent them back. They always, they always sent them back, sent them back to me. And one more time, I've got Pat come home with a wife. I got to worry about her now. Keep her mouth shut. You keep people's mouth shut. You buy things for them. Bought her a lot of stuff. And then he's got four years into that marriage. He had a little girl, and and I've got one more thing I got to take care of that little girl. Today's the apple of my eye, and, and on the fourth day of January, she gave me my one and only great grandbaby. And she, we, Pat sent her, got her educated and all that. She got her master's degree. She's the only grandkid I've got. But I can tell you that there was times when I didn't think it would ever happen. So we got uh, Mike. He come up. He said he called me up one day. Say he's gonna kill himself. And um, I said, Well, wait till I get there. Just wait. <laughs> Just wait on me. I'll be up there. I knew I could fix it. So I took my pocketbook with my money and I go up there and I said, How much money would you have to have not to shoot yourself? This is the God's truth. He priced it, and I paid him. <laughs> and he ain't killed himself yet. I put him in a broke-down old pickup and sent him off to Marietta, Ohio, where he had a girlfriend up there. He wanted to go up there, and he went up there and got, and, and got hooked up with her. And the drinking and the drugging was progressing more and more and more in my family. Uh, I can tell you people right now that I was standing knee-deep in water and I was dying of thirst and I didn't know there was a thing wrong with me. If I could get that man to shut up and mind me and get those kids to listen, if I could come up with enough money, I could fix it all. I knew I could fix every problem we had. And I set out and I did it full steam. But I, So Mike is up there for three or four years getting worse and worse and worse all the time. And one night the phone rung about 11 o'clock at night. And it was Mike. And he sounded good. And he said, Mama, guess what? He said, I called up to tell you. There was a man that came to see me today. And he said, I've been down on my knees praying. And God has forgiven me. And I'm going to be a preacher. Now, Mike had told me when he was 15 that he felt a strong calling on his life to preach. Now, I don't know what you all think, but us old Southern Baptists believe that. And Mike said, I told God I ain't going to be a preacher. If you want a preacher in our bunch, get Pat to be it. Not going to be me. So he said, I'm going to go be that preacher God wants me to be. And I said, well, you can't do that. Because, see, I didn't think of that. And he, I said, you can't do that. And he said, yes, I can. I said, Mike, you was in jail when your class graduated from high school. He said, I can go do it. He went up to Marietta, Ohio, cleaned himself up, went up to a Bible college, took the test that was necessary for him to get in that school, and he went to that school for two years, and I sent him every dime he needed to go on. Never one time, people, did it ever occur to me to fall down on my knees and say, Lord, is this your will? It didn't make me any difference. It was that kid's will and my will, and I'd have steamrolled over everybody between here and Bigsby, Oklahoma that got in my way. I was going to get it done. I tell you, I threw my chest out, and people would say to me, Oh, June, aren't you proud? And you bet I was proud. I said to myself, if that, if I've got one kid that finally listened to me, now if them other two no accounts would listen to me, they'd turn out good too. They won't listen to nothing I say, but Mike finally listened. Look at his life. I took full credit for it. Really thought it was me. So then he, he stayed up there for two years, and he called me one day, and he said he wanted to go to Belfast in Northern Ireland, and he wanted to go to school over there with Dr. Ian Paisley. And I said, how much money do you need? Money, money, money. That was all I thought that would fix everything. 
I said, how much money do you have to have, Mike? And he told me, and I sent it, and I sent money to him for the two years he stayed over there and went to school and, and, um, and preached all over that country. And when he came out of there, he wanted to go to Bob Jones University down here in South Carolina. And I said, how much money do you have, have to have? And he had a wife by then. I took full responsibility for him and his wife, and he went down there and he graduated with his degree. I was absolutely thrilled to death with that boy, and I was plastering that sign all over the paper. My Christensen, son of June and Carl. And so I got two drunk kids and one preacher boy. The preacher boy don't like the drunks. The drunks don't like the preacher boy. <laughs> Carl can't hardly stand none of us. <laughs> Me and Carl had spent money like it was growing on trees. We'd, bought, we'd run them high-dollar horses up and down the from Augusta, Georgia to California. We'd... We drove high-dollar pickups and trailers, and and we wasn't paying taking care of our business. And one day we looked up, and we were in bad time trouble. We owed a lot of money, and the interest had went up, and the price of cattle had went down. The oil pumps, oil well had quit pumping. The coal mine was dug up. The money was all gone, and I had bought things that I had no earthly need of in my life. I mean, I'm out there shoveling stalls every day. I love cleaning a stall and groom a horse right over. I bought myself a fur coat. Now, can you believe it? What in the thunderation am I going to do with a fur coat out there working like a field hand, blood and guts all over me where I'm helping Carl do? But I decided I needed that. And uh, so I bought things I had no earthly use of in the world. My daughter-in-law now owns that coat. And um, so I, that, we were just blowing money, just blowing money. And we look up one day and we're in bad trouble. And we got to sell that ranch in order to pay off our debts. Sell away a life that we both absolutely love. We can't afford that many horses no more. We can't afford them high-dollar trucks no more, them pickups. We can't run from Augusta to California no more. This has all got to come to a screeching halt. And who do you think got the blame? I blamed it on Carl. It was his fault. If he had stayed, if he had done better, if he had managed better, if he had said, he was not to blame. He was not to blame. I was as much to blame as he was, but I blamed it on him. And that resentment was just stirring in me and stirring in me. We were able to sell our place and have a farm sale and sell everything we had. And we paid off what we owed. And we bought a small little place up closer to into Tulsa where we lived for several years until I moved on my home place. And uh, we lived up there and we were building a stalls with, um, uh, eight stall barn to put what few horses we could keep, and um, and we and Pat was flying spray planes for a living by that time, and we looked up and we heard that thing coming, and Carl stepped out of that barn and he said, "My God, girl, that boy's drunk and he's going to kill himself in that plane," and I will never forget the look I had on my fa- the the look I put on my face or the look that was on Carl's when I said to him, in my pride and arrogance, my self righteousness, my condemnation of this man. I looked at him and I said, how in the world do you know so much? He's up there, you're down here, now what do you know about it? And he said, oh, Lord, girl, why don't you get your head out of your rear end? He's drunk, he's going to kill himself. Phone rung about 9 o'clock that night. We had gone back down on the ranch place to stay a few days later, more, and the phone rung, and it was Pat. And he said, Mama, i got to have some help. Well, boy, he called the right feller because I'm always ready with help, you know. And Regina had married into a family of people that had drunk up an oil company in Tulsa. And the daddy had got sobered up in something called A&A. And he had gone to a treatment center up here in Tulsa. So I knew, you know, I'm all, I've got, hey, I had a wealth of knowledge about anything that came down the pike. I could fix it. So I say to Pat, 
you go down to Grandpa's and stay tonight. Don't, his wife had kicked him out. You go down there at the, your Grandpa's and stay tonight. Don't come down here. And I'll get you in the morning. When I hung up the phone, Carl looked at me and said, what was that all about? And I just said nothing. We couldn't talk. We could not talk about it. And uh, so I just said nothing. I, ca- I got up the next morning. I called Pat's wife. And I said, put the best dress on you've got. We're going to take Pat to join the A&A. And um, <laughs> I went and got him. And I've had him go put on the best thing he had. And his hair was too long. And uh, so I took him to a barbershop up on 71st Memorial in Tulsa. Uh, I guarded the front and she guarded the back so he wouldn't run out and uh, got him cleaned up. Then I got him in the car and I said, now here's what I want you to do when you go in there. You go in there and you tell them people uh, about your grandpa. Tell them he's got lots of money and owns lots of land. Tell them, about a, tell them we got a big old ranch. Don't tell them we're losing it. Just tell them we got this big old place down there and, and tell them we're farm family of the year. And, and we don't know what happened here, but we're farm. And I thought they won't no more get that right than a spook. So I'll just go in there and tell them myself. <laughs> so I know I marched right in there, stood right nose to nose with this big old Indian counselor that became a great, great friend of mine. And I began to tell him all the stuff. And he let me rattle on for about five minutes and dismissed me. But I'll tell you people something about my boy. My boy Pat went to that treatment center. They were different back there in Tulsa than they are today. And they told him, you're going to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, and here's where you're going. You're going to go out here on the west side of Tulsa with this old tough group. And here's who's going to be your sponsor, an old man named Leo. Leo's dead today. Leo had 30 or 35 years sobriety when Pat got out there. And this is how you're going to do it. And Leo took hold of Pat, and he said, I want to tell you something, boy. I ain't the least bit impressed that you can fly an airplane or that you've been to college or that your grandpa's got money or that your farm family of the year, kid. None of that stuff matters. You stay green and grow, boy, and one of these days you'll have sobriety like I've got. The 29th day of March this year, my boy handed, was handed a 21-year chip. In spite of his mother, but because of you, because of long-timers like you all, I know there's some alcoholics in this room, because of you all, because of what Butch was talking about last night. You reached out that hand, and you picked up somebody out of the gutter, and you helped him. My boy, they call him doctor today. He lives in St. Louis. He's on the executive board of a big hospital up there, and it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for you all. Now then, I got this. Uh, these other kids, is, got Mike, he's preaching. Pat's finally got sobered up. And so uh, Regina. They fished her out of a swimming pool in the summertime, in the summer that year. She landed right back up there in that same treatment center, in that same old tough bunch up there in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She landed up there with some of them old tough sponsors that told her. I mean, it wasn't, they, it was like you were talking about last night, but they told you what to do and you were so grateful you did it. You did it. And she did what she was told. And on the ninth day of December this year, I'm going to get to hand her a 21-year chip. I'm going to tell you something. That's a miracle. You thank God in in this deal, you think again, because I'm going to tell you something. Or go get them books of history and read it, and you'll see how these miracles happen. So my kids came running to me, and they said, Mama, we think you need to (laughs) go... (laughs) We think you need to go to something called Al-Anon. And I said, you you got to be kidding. 
go out there and tell your daddy. He's the one that was the horse's rear end. It wasn't me. You have forgot all these things I did for you. And they said, no, Mama, it's you. <laughs> and they brought me that book. And they said, you read that book. You read this book. And, you, and so I thought, I don't have any problem reading that book. I mean, it, they told me my kids had a disease. If they'd have said they got leukemia, I'd have read about leukemia. They said they got a disease called alcoholism. I'm going to read the book. I'm going to find out. Well, I found out a lot of things in that book. I saw what was wrong with Carl. It said it. <laughs> it said plain as day in that book. In full flight from reality or else is mentally defective. And I wrote his name right out there in the mark. It said their inability to get honest. That was Pat, Mike, and Regina. That was what was wrong with them. They had lied through their whole life, and that was what had caused their problem. I read that much to put the book up. I began to see a difference in people. I can tell you people right now, there began to be a healing in my home. But healing did not come in my home like that, that, that. No, no, no. Healing did not come in my home when someone walked up and said, I sure am sorry. I sure am sorry didn't cut it no more with us. Healing came in my home when things changed. If nothing changes, nothing changes. If you don't walk different, talk different, run with a different bunch of people, and behave in a different manner, nothing changes. You can sit in these meetings till hell freezes over. You can listen to every tape James has got back there. You can read every book. But if you don't walk different and you don't have a heartfelt change, you ain't changed. You ain't changed. And so when they came along and they began to change and we began to see the changes, the healing came in my home. The healing began. And there's healing in my home today. There's healing in my home today. My husband don't run out and run my children off no more. He, he, he puts his arms around them big old boys and says, I love you and I'm proud of you. And I'm going to tell you something. They, that came from the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Al-Anon that we walk with in our family. And so my children encouraged me, and they told me to go to Al-Anon, and I said no. Three years went by. I saw the changes in my children. I saw the people they brought into our home, and I began to see that these people did not, they were sober people. I, but they, there was something different about these people than there was the people I grew up with in the church. They didn't condemn, and they didn't judge, and they didn't say, you've been in this, and you've been in that, and you've been in that. We haven't got room for you in our house. No, no. It began to be a different deal. And three years went by, and I picked up the phone and called Marietta, Ohio, and I asked about my boy. And the preacher said, June, I hate to tell you this, but that boy's dead drunk, and he's been drunk for two weeks. I thought I was going to die. I got another secret. How am I going to keep it? It was on Saturday. I didn't tell nobody. On Sunday morning, my daddy always came by to get drink coffee with me, and he came in, and as he walked in the house, I passed out. I couldn't breathe and I couldn't talk, and they rushed me to the hospital. They called my boy Pat and my daughter Regina was in Tulsa, and they said, you better come up here to the hospital. I think your mama's dying. They worked with me all day long, and they found nothing wrong one more time. And they sent me home, and by the time the evening came, I could breathe and I could talk a little. And my boy Pat took me back in my bedroom, and he sat down on the bed beside me, and he said, Mama, won't you tell me what's wrong here? And I just shook my head, no. Mama, is it Mike? Yes. He's drunk, isn't he? Yeah, he is. How'd you know? Oh, he said, Mama, we can see it coming. We've been waiting. We can see that relapse coming. And I know what he's talking about today. You can see that relapse coming when they start walking different, talking different, missing this, missing that, and stop being with the people they ought to be with. You can tell it's going to come. That disease is powerful, and it calls them. It calls them. And that disease had called my boy, and he went. 
And my boy Pat got on a plane the next morning and he flew to Columbus, Ohio to get him. He said, I'm going to go get him and put him in a treatment center. And he called them preachers. There was about 15 of them up there in that big old church. And he said, if you can help me, pick me up in Columbus and take me to Marietta. But if you can't help me, don't get in my way. Because I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm coming after my brother. And he went up there and he got that boy that day. And he took him to that treatment center. And he put him in that treatment center where Mike stayed only two weeks. And he came out there and he drunk. He was drunk again. And his little wife that he had, that he had married when he was down at Bob Jones, she called me and she said, June, maybe if we could come home. And I said, I'll send you a plane ticket. And I sent them a plane ticket and they came home. And somehow, by the grace of God and by the fear of God that those kids of mine put in him, the poor old thing managed to stay sober and not drink during that two-week time. It came time for me to send that boy one more time, far, far away where I didn't have to look at him no more. That was my pattern. Get him far, far away where I can't, I won't have to look. And when I tell you that, I think you're sit, sitting there saying she must have been a bad mother. I wasn't a bad mother. I was a sick mother. I was suffering from a disease I didn't know I had. And so the day arrived, I could send that boy one more time off. I put him on a plane that morning, him and his little wife up there in Tulsa. And I walked back out in that airport, and I backed up against the wall, and I slid to the floor. And I sat down there with my head on my knees, and I sobbed like I had put a corpse on that flight. Because I knew the gig was up. I knew I didn't have the power and I didn't have the money. My daddy didn't have it. I can't fix this deal. But I can tell you right now, I didn't quit trying. Not for a long time did I quit trying. You know, Butch mentioned it last night and I knew what he meant when he said it. Lack of power was my dilemma. And it was my dilemma for many, many years until I gave it up. And so my, here comes my little girl running down that corridor of that air, airport. And she sat with me that day some two or three hours. And she taught me what you all had taught her. My children became my teachers. Mothers are supposed to teach their children. But my children took me by the hand and they became my teachers, my two sober children. They said to me, Mama, this is where you're going to be willing to go to Al-Anon. You're going to go to an old group down in Okmulgee, Oklahoma, where there's a woman down there named Ramona. I knew Ramona and Bob had known them for years. You're going to go down there and Ramona will help you. And on the last Tuesday night in August 1987, I walked into that Al-Anon room. And I went in there knowing full well. There was nothing wrong with me, and all I needed was for someone to tell me how to sober up that drunk preacher kid and how to make Carl shut up and mind me, and I would be fine. I did not know that I was walking in such self-pity, such self-righteousness, such soul sickness that Butch mentioned last night. I know what soul sickness is, just like he knew. I was walking. I was driven by fear. Driven by fear. And that's how I went to my first meeting. I left that meeting and I knew I wasn't going back. And my little girl made me promise, Mama, go for six weeks. Just go for six weeks. I got, and I've been going ever since. I got Ramona to be my sponsor. And my two little sober kids took me by the hand and they took me to my first conference down in Oklahoma. Lordy, have I been up here an hour already? I, so I, I went to my first conference. A lady named Sue Drum stood up behind a podium like this. And she said two things that I grasped onto. You gotta learn to say you could be right and you gotta take recovery in your home. And I went home armed with that and I waited and I didn't have to wait long. I knew Carl had vexed me and he did. And I looked square at it, poor old Carl and I said, you know what Carl? You could be right. Poor old Carl. His face fell about right here. 
I got up and I went down the hall and I got on my knees and I started praying and I prayed like this, Lord, if you will shut my mouth. Now, prior to that, I'm praying woman. I would have went and I would have prayed, Lord, if you'll shut him up, I'll go out there and tell him what it is I know you have put upon my heart to tell him. That's just how self-righteous I was. I just knew that I was it. And I knew it was my job. And so I, I did not know it took me a long time before I saw one night the damage I had done to that man. I didn't know there was another soul in that house hurting but me. And, and, and I come home from a meeting one night and, and, and there sat my husband with my boy Pat. He'd called him from Arkansas to come home. And the tears were streaming down that man's face. And I said, what's happened here? And he said, June, I didn't know what else to do. I had to have some help. See, Carl, he don't go to nothing. He just got good by osmosis <laughs> and prayer. And so he said, I had to have some help. And I called Pat. There sat that boy that he had run off his property and many a time. And that boy was sitting there with his daddy. And the tears were flowing and he was telling him things that he needed to hear. And I saw for the first time that night what I had done to a man. I saw that I had ripped him of every shred of dignity he had. I would blamed him where there was no blame. And I had to get on my knees in front of that man that night and make amends. And from that night until I left home Friday morning, I don't tell him what to say, how to act. He can act however he wants to. I don't care. It's not my business. The same God that speaks to me will speak to him. And all I have to do today is when I pray for myself and the knowledge of God's will for my life, I ask him for the knowledge of God's will for Carl's. And it works, people. It works. And so this is how things are rocking along. And Mike, we get him. He comes back. Finally, he sobers up for about a year. And, Lord, I could stand up here forever and tell you the stories of Mike. And it goes on and on. And it gets good and it gets bad and it gets sober for a little while. And the disease calls him. And, and, and Ramona started me through my steps. And that's when she picked up that big book. And she told me, you, you do this like this. And she laid that book down. And I did it exactly. I did my fourth step exactly like it's laid out in that book. And we did the stuff. like. And she told me, you do what it says to do every morning and every evening. You do that third step prayer on your knees every day, every day. Lord, release me of the bondage of self that I may better do your will. Take away my difficulties, Lord. That victory over them may have may may show power your power and your love. She showed me where it talks about in the big book that used to be conference proved by the way for Alan's the family afterwards and the chapter to the wives about the old miner whose pick struck gold. Butch talked about that last night a little bit. The longer he dug, the more he got, got, had, and the more he had, the more he gave away, and the more he gave away, the more he dug on and on, a vicious cycle he did. And because of his action, the book says he was freed from a lifetime of frustration and a lifetime of bondage. See, she showed me all those things. So I began to do that. I had to go home, get that book down, and take their name out. Had to put my own name down there. Saw myself in that book. Saw myself. And so, Mike, he gets sober for a little while. He comes home. He's my best buddy. God, Mike's my funnest kid. Bob and Barbara know Mike. Mike's full of life and he's a lot of fun. He's made a lot of these conferences with me. And so he, we go and, and, and he, he comes every morning. We do our stuff, you know. And, and then I watch it. I watch it call him. Calls him again. And he goes. He goes, and he's drunk again, and he's up there in Tulsa, and then he's down in Dallas. He, he, he walks with some of the greats of this program. He walked with David A. for several years. He was in that home, with, and, and David tried to help him, but then the disease would call him, and he would go again. And he finally wound up back in Tulsa. He wound up back in Tulsa. And the last three years, 
97, 98, and 99, 98, 99, and 2000, the year of 2000. He laid in the streets of Tulsa. And he literally laid in the streets of Tulsa. He, he, he lived in the dumpsters. He panhandled on the streets. He begged for money. He was in and out of the asylums. He was in and out of the missions. He was in jail many times. And people would call me and tell me. They saw him. I didn't go look for him. I didn't go look for him. There's some things that you just can't look at. And I couldn't look. And he was, he was gone. And you know, I, I went off to, you know what? I never set out to do this, what I'm doing this morning. I never put my name on a list. I ain't never sent a tape to nobody. But somehow or other, it just kind of got started. And I've been doing it since 1994. I probably, in, in all those years, I probably ain't been to 10 Al-Anon conferences. Most always an AA conference. And one morning, one time, I figured it out. I figured it out. And here's what I figured out. I go to these AA conferences. I'm the only Al-Anon speaker there. So I don't hear any more Al-Anons. But I hear these men. I hear these men like Butch and like Bobby and like Jim's going to tell us. I hear men like Tom I. I hear all these people. And I listen to what they're saying. And I knew why God had sent me to these places. Because I lived off that hope. If they can crawl out of a box... And they can be what they are today. My boy can do it too. And he, and that's why I was there. I ain't, I ain't up here this morning because I can give a great talk. Shoot for, there's people out here in this room that can do a better job than me. And I know that. This ego, I don't need that anymore. See, I'm fine for having your mother. Remember that. I don't. (laughs) But I can tell you one thing. If one of those Alcoholic Anonymous speakers, if one of those men had ever stood at this podium and said, it was my sainted mother that saved my life, I would never have quit. I would never have quit. I read the Bible. I got to thinking about it one time. I thought, shoot fire. It don't even say anything in that Bible about Paul's mother being with him when he got rescued on the road to Damascus. I mean, I am not the... It. It was hard to accept, but I did. <laughs> so, my boy's on the streets, and he called me uh, one day, and I and I went, and I knew it was wrong. I knew when I got in the car it was wrong. I went up there and got him, and I can tell you right now I didn't have no pocket full of money to give him no more. I didn't ask him to make me no promises. I looked at him in his clothes; he had wet on himself, and he was. He was filthy, nasty, and his hair was long, and his beard was long, and his eyes were vacant. The disease of alcoholism was in that car that day with him and with me. And I had to do the only thing I I knew to do that day. I did. I I called Gracie when I got home, and I told Gracie what I'd done. And she said, June, you did what you had to do. I took him to an old motel room, and I paid two nights' rent. And I laid a $20 bill on the table and I walked out. And I got on a plane the next morning and I went somewhere far away. And Tom, I was there. And I listened one more time and one more time. I was filled with that hope that it wasn't me. It ain't going to be you, June, that's going to rescue that kid. And I got involved and that was not that many. I had walked with you all for a long time. And I was still on the verge of doing it wrong. You'll come to a place where you'll doubt your sponsor. You'll doubt the books. You'll doubt God. You'll want one more time. See, I, I begin to live off that 11th step. I begin to pray for the knowledge of God's will for my life and the power to carry it out. I don't have the power to leave my boy alone. I don't have the power to leave my kids alone. 
but God has it. And if I ask him for it, he will give it to me. And so that's what I began to live off of, was asking for and expecting and thanking him for the power that he was going to give me. And one day at a time, one hour at a time, one minute at a time, he gave it to me. He gave it to me. And so then there came a night that uh, it was in February in the year 2000. And it was cold and it was just beginning to snow. And the phone rang and it was him. And he said, Mama, I can't lay in these streets tonight. Please come and get me. And I got in the car and I started. And I pulled out to the barn where Carl was feeding. And I said, I'm going to go get that kid and I don't care what they say. I can't stand this one more night. I'm going after him. And my husband looked at me and he shook his head and he said, June, you just go do what you have to do. Well, I made her about five miles down the road. And I started, see, when I get in my will, and I know I'm against God's will, I start arguing. I start justifying rationalizing, like it says in the book. And I began telling God why I had to go do this, and God began to speak to me. And I pulled her off. And I sat on the side of the road, and I called my sponsor. And my sponsor didn't answer, but her husband did. Her husband's 30-some years in this program. He's my prayer warrior. He has prayed with me many a night for that boy. And so he, I said, Bob, I don't care. I'm going after him. And he said, June, June, June. You turn that car around now, dear, and you go on back home. And you leave that boy in the hands of loving God. And I said, oh, but Bob, it's so cold. And he said, we're a real innovative bunch. He'll find a warm spot. <laughs> and he did. He did. He waited on me. I often wondered how long he stood on that street corner before he gave up and decided I wasn't coming. I finally asked him, and he said, oh, Mama, I sat there for about 1 o'clock that morning, and then I made my way down to Salvation Army or the Mission, I don't know which. That was in February 2000, and things got worse, and things got worse. On the 18th day of December of the year 2000, he called, and he said, Mama, would you let me come home? I'm waiting on a bed at the Mission. I've called a man from Alcoholics Anonymous. I've given up. I said, you can come home. And I went and got him. First I asked Carl. First I asked Carl. And I went and got him and we brought him home. And he shook off that drunk and, God, it was terrible. It was terrible. And we waited six days for a bed. On the 18th day of December this year, if my boy stays with you, he'll have five years. Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I can tell you that he did that in spite of his mother. (laughs) He would call his daddy when he was down in Dallas, and he would be locked up in a psych ward. And in a thick tongue, he'd say, Daddy, I sure do love you. And his daddy would say back to him, I love you back, Mike. See, it works. It really works if you just do the deal. If you just don't do it your way. See, I believe with all my heart that over 2,000 years when that man stood up there on that hilltop and he, and he gave that set of principles where we could live with one another in harmony and agreement and love, I think it's strongly, strongly, and I don't think it's an accident, that it resembles those 12 steps. And I believe with all my heart that this program was divinely inspired. I think God spoke to Bill Wilson's heart that day, and he was able to lay that set of uh, uh, principles down for us to live by because I don't think Bill Wilson or no other man walking is that smart. It took, it, it, I mean, there ain't nobody that can come up with something that thousands and thousands and thousands of lives 
can be brought up out of the gutter and made to walk whole. And and in the here comes James. I bet he's wanting me to shut up. Well, <laughs> he said he said I can finish up. Okay, I'll finish up. It says in my book here that I carry around me. He has delivered my soul in peace from the battles that were against me, and there were many with me. And God knows you all know that by now. There were many with me. I close my story every time by the same way. Me and Carl showed them cutting horses. Carl showed, I worked. We went to the cuttings. I did all the work. We worked at home. I got screamed and yelled at. At the cutting, there's, they've got to have a turn-back man. I was the turn-back man. The, the cutter sets out here, cuts the cattle. turn-back man sets out here and keeps them run up to him. You get screamed at if you're his wife. I got sick of it. I decided it was time for me to get to go and do the deal and have fun. So Carl bought me <coughs> this mare. Well-trained mare, well-bred mare, well-trained mare. I had the spurs, a hat, shafts, boots, saddle, everything you need, and I had my well-trained mare. Then Carl sent me to the old master, who was an old man named Pat Patterson, lived over at Tecumseh, Oklahoma. Pat had won the, the championship award many, many times. And I went over and stayed with that old man, and that old man worked with me and taught me and showed me how to do the deal and how to, how to be able to stay up on that mare. And he, and he was patient and loving with me. I went to my very first show. It was at Shawnee, Oklahoma, and the old man came. My teacher showed up. Now, at the cutting, you know, you cut down on this end, and then there's that end down there where you ride your horses around and get them loose, limber them up. I'm down there loping my mare, loping my mare, and I look up, and there's Mr. Pat. And Mr. Pat, I said, he said, come over here, June. I want to talk to you just a minute. And so he, he pulls me off the side, and he said, now, June, you listen to me. You can ride that mare real good. But here's what you need to do. You put her head down. You get way down in there on them pockets. Take a deep seat in that saddle. You put her head down and don't try to help her. That mare knows what to do. You trust her and don't try to help her. You just sit there. Now, at the cutting, there's two men set out here. Turn back help. There's a man sets on each corner. That's the herd holders. They hold that herd to keep them from swarming out on you once you get your cow cut and you're out there in the middle riding for your dear life and so <laughs> he said now i'm going to be over here in this corner and carl's going to be over here in this corner and if you'll just scrooch way down in there on them pockets take a deep seat relax trust your mare i'll talk you through it if you'll just listen i'll talk you through it i was somewhere giving a talk one time and that all came to my mind and i thought oh shoot that's the whole deal. You know, my God has said to me, June, I have given you the best there is. That's these books we read and these tapes we listen to, these places we get to go. I have sent you to the masters. That's you old, you old timers, you people that have been around a long time, that I listen to and I gained, gleaned so much hope from. I've given you all this. And all you need to do, June, is trust me and don't try to help me. Just listen. I'm going to talk you through it. And oh, my Lord, he comes and he talks me through it every day. It don't make no difference what kind of problems you've got. He comes and he talks me through it. And he'll come and talk you through it, too. But there's one catch. There's one catch. You've got to invite him in. See, he don't come uninvited. He does not. We've got free will. We've got free will. He don't intrude and come in uninvited. So you've got to ask him. You've got to ask him. And the big book says it. God could and would if he were sought. God bless each one of you.
Archie Glad you came to announce on me. <laughs> June, I can't say enough thanks for your talk and your time for coming. And we do have the gift that. And if you'll give June and I a few minutes, we're going to come down and we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together. Now, remember, we've got another meeting tonight at 8 o'clock, and it will be crowded, so try to make your way in here for fairly early.